Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we'll be talking about killjoys and the concept of being a killjoy. So today we'll be talking about killjoys, in particular being a feminist killjoy. Might be a good place to start out by describing what a killjoy is. Yeah, so I think I think killjoys are people who sort of suck the joy out of a political topic as a way of introducing like a more critical perspective or angle on that object. So I think Feminist killjoys spoil um, the joy or they expose the um, problematic attachments that people have to certain objects. So whether those are cultural figures or, you know, texts or discourses or, you know, ideas or identifications, like killjoys disrupt um, the happiness that people find from problematic cultural artifacts. I think killjoys are often assumed to be negative people, Mm -hmm. but they're really people who are presenting to people problems with things that are they're attached to. So they're perceived as being negative, but really they're just making you aware of a situation that's negative and they're angry about it which often leads to you just assuming that they're angry in general. But really, they're just pointing out something that is unfair, oppressive, or unequal. Mm -hmm. You can, I think, attribute the term killjoy in a broad sense to people who are like party poopers or like who suck the fun out of situations. But when it's connected to feminism or activism or justice, then it's uh, a situation in which the killjoy is interrupting a place of happiness in order to make people aware that that happiness is predicated on sexism or racism or inequality. We're not, like, interrupting moments of joy that are truly connected to a self. Yeah. Or, like, (laughs) pure, like personal joy pleasure yeah yeah Uh it's like interrupting moments of happiness that are connected to institutions that are violent violent or harmful or dishonest or unequal like not accessible to everyone i mean you know there's a book that we both love the promise of happiness by sarah ahmed i love that book I love that book because she rightfully points out how feminists get such a bad rap. She writes about how feminists are typically represented in like popular media as being humorless and unfunny and, you know, outside of the joke and disruptive for disruptiveness's sake. Um, And that just intrinsically feminists are read as killjoys because they take up and undermine the foundations of privilege and power. And I think that that's right. I think that conservative talk talk media especially is all about pointing to the humorlessness 
uh, a supposed humorlessness of feminists to sort of undercut their credibility, but that comes from a place that is really, I think, much more productive than than really most other spaces. I think the Killjoy is has tremendous potential to disrupt our attachments to ideas in the culture that really are problematic. I know a lot of um, women will identify with feminist concepts, but they will claim that they're not a feminist. Mm-hmm. And really what they're trying to say is that they're not a fem- feminist killjoy. I know Ahmet, Ahmet kind of discusses that, and she says part of being a feminist killjoy is, you know, it's, a lot of times it can be read as being just a problematic person or a difficult person, or it can be a way that people write off feminism. It's just like ridiculous or angry. But she says people should accept that because, you know, you have to keep bringing up these things and you have to be confrontational um, in order to get people to realize that change, to create discomfort, you know, mm-hmm. because that's really a place uh, where change can happen. Yeah, I really like her argument about how Killjoy's beyond just pointing out moments of sexism or, or white supremacy or ableism or whatever. I love how she makes the argument that the feminist Killjoy often is blamed for exposing or letting out bad feelings, you know, the ones that sort of get hidden or um, displaced under sort of this this public demand to conform with happiness. And obviously we've talked about happiness at several junctures in the show already, but I think just like this overwhelming drive to perform public happiness is really detrimental and creates a lot of interpersonal and intrapersonal health problems, mental health problems, because people don't have outlets to talk through negative feelings about problematic objects of attachment. And so I really like the way that she thinks through that being a a strong fundamental um, plus of feminist killjoys in popular culture. I think it's also really smart how she talks about um, killjoys in reference to race. Oh, yeah. You know, she discusses how um, a lot of, like, mainstream culture assumes that racism would, like, go away if people just wouldn't talk about it. They're like, racism isn't a problem anymore. It's only just a problem because you keep bringing it up and allowing it to govern your life and, like, govern social life. And she's pretty much dismissive of that, I think, and she says, you know, like, being a killjoy is a refusal to, like, look away from something that isn't gone yet. Like, continuing to bring up things that continue to be a problem, but that have been, like, sidelined in a particular way. I mean, racism obviously isn't gone. It's one of the strongest points she makes in my mind. You know, she's saying, like, it's important to point out instances of racism and sexism. And even now, I think um, it's become really popular to point out instances of sexual assault. And there's been a lot of conversation about that. And that can be, you know, space for the killjoy. I know I have a, a personal friend 
who is very open about her rape. And she'll discuss it on social media. She writes public letters to her rapist every year. Like once a year on the anniversary of her rape, she'll write a letter to her rapist about what happened, how she feels. And she does it publicly. She's like rightfully pointing out a problem that she encountered. That's not just a problem that is isolated to her. It's like a systematic problem, especially it happened to her in a dorm room on a campus. And I'm like, I'm sorry this is an uncomfortable subject for you <laughs> as yeah, you're totally. reading it. But I think that the fact that she's bringing it up is so important. Like, it makes you aware of something that's happening. That I'm sorry it's uncomfortable that you had to hear that someone was raped, but now you're aware that that's a problem. And it's also a problem that someone you personally know had. And that... I feel like increases your involvement and awareness of problems. And your and responsibility. Yeah, and your responsibility, absolutely. your culpability, your responsibility to help ameliorate them. So, I mean, I think it's a tool for, like, information, transmitting information. I mean, Arma talks a lot about creating unhappiness. I'm like, reading about someone else's rape is a... a space of unhappiness mm -hmm. but it's important like that unhappiness allows you to connect with that problem and feel you know motivated by it and want, want to be active about it in a way that if you're separated from it i mean i'm sorry <laughs> i'm not sorry i'm sorry i'm not sorry <laughs> well but that's part of the point of the killjoy. It's like introduce things that are uncomfortable. Yeah. So that you have to face them and you can't just put it into your background, which is why I think her comments on racism are so important, especially now. And why like the Black Lives Matter movement is so important now. You can't actually ignore the fact that there's still racism. Like it's obvious and I'm sorry that you haven't been told about it mm -hmm. and that the news hasn't been paying attention to it for so long. But I'm not sorry. This is something you have to know about and deal with. It shouldn't be hidden. No. You know, I mean, I think feminist killjoys are inherently critics and that one of criticism's object is to create sort of new ethical spaces to make demands for people's responsibility. And, you know, in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, it's, it's useful that the term white fragility is circulating so much more widely now than it had. Um, and I like thinking about white fragility because I feel like it's a space of thinking through sort of the personal feelings that go along with the denial to take on social responsibility, especially for systematic, you know, racial, especially class-based you know, economic structures that create poverty and segregation and these sorts of things. And so, you know, thinking through how killjoys operate as critics, as ethical interventions into structures that, that, that build and perpetuate inequality, I think is really useful because that bit you were saying about pain is important. I think most people do not want to dwell in painful spaces. And I think that that's a problem because it's only when you dwell in the painful spaces that you can break them up and manage them and take responsibility for your agency as a part of them. 
And that's not to blame the victim, it's to reclaim the power, to reframe the experience in a larger narrative about power and violence and empire and imperialism and a bunch of other things that are useful frames for where that, that experience fits into the larger system. But people are unwilling to face the pain. And the killjoy brings the pain to the surface and, and sort of wallows in the pain. And of course, people want to avoid that, except that that's where structural inequality is bound. So without releasing that pain and, and making it public and, and circulating it, I'm not quite sure how we change our attachments to problematic, you know, notions. One for me that I that I'm a killjoy about all the time is romance, and we've talked about that on on the show already. You know, I, all the time I'm interested in destroying ideas of sentimentality and romance, and so these ridiculous trappings of how to arrange our emotional and economic labor that clearly deprivilege women's experiences and investments, and that encourage decision making that is not in the best interest of most most people. And so, you know, I think that there's a tremendous amount of utility in feminist killjoys identifying those targets in the culture that are primarily responsible for pain, for public pain, whether those are, you know, and I don't mean that from like a purely sort of, you know, third wave feminist, white feminist perspective. I mean, all of them, whether they're ableist or white supremacist or if they come from a class perspective or whatever, I think the feminist plays a useful role in pointing out those institutional structures. Yeah, and I think a lot of people associate those structures with happiness. And, yeah, but I, I think the killjoy does a good job of uniting moments of unhappiness with allowing you to find, identify with your desire, and it separates those institutions from what you actually desire. Like there, and I think on a broad scope, that's hard to understand. But if you look at like being a killjoy in a personal situation, it becomes a lot clearer. There are a lot of instances of killjoys on like an individual scope. At Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> at, at the holiday meal, oh, always. Yeah. That's, I mean, oh, that's yeah. a prime spot for killjoys as yeah, we come up on exactly. Thanksgiving here. And I know, I, uh, just like in a personal example, last year, or maybe it was the year before that. I took like this group, huge family picture with my family. Um, most of my family hadn't even spoken a word to me. Um, my whole family was on my father's side, was here for this like family gathering. It was my grandparents' 75th anniversary, um, just a couple weeks before Thanksgiving. So it was a big gathering. Almost no one in my family even spoke a word to me the whole weekend. We got together for this family picture, and I made an ugly face, just like as a show <laughs> that I, yeah, you know, you were resisting. Yeah, and I mean, I complied. I was compliant for, you know, probably sixty frames were taken <laughs> of our family, and I complied with almost ninety percent or more of them. I made an ugly face in three or four pictures, and my family was very upset. I mean, does it make sense? You know, that I pretend like I am happy and a part of this group when you didn't say anything to me. We haven't spoken in years. I'm just supposed to, like, pretend that I'm happy in this picture with you. But I also I think um, 
like on an individual level um, situations like to me almost the show intervention if you're familiar with that I mean, you know like, I don't watch TV <laughs> <laughs> there's like a killjoy moment when you can tell a person to get their shit together yeah yeah you know when you hey you're a total failure you gotta pull your shit together yeah yeah so I think um there's a a way of telling someone like this thing that you think that is making you happy right now or that like is defining your life right now it's a reality check there's like a temporary moment of discomfort or unhappiness but it allows you to then discover like what really matters or what you really desire it's like detaching you from mm-hmm. the reality I think Ahmed talks about it in a particular way. She talks about it as the familiar. And the familiar isn't revealed if you're inhabiting it, if you're living it. You have to be detached from it to understand. And I think that that's totally true. I mean, I think, for me, as somebody who studies like identification as a rhetorical way of understanding how people come together in groups or you know how they manage their relationality to others... I mean, I would say that I function in public probably 80% of the time as a killjoy and disrupting fantasies of identification, like about what it means to be white or what it means to be heterosexual or what it means to be married or what it means to be an Arkansan or what it means to be an American or what it means to be a patriot or what it means to be a feminist. I feel like I am, I, I exist in the killjoy space in the, in the majority of my time in public for sure, because I'm actively invested in disrupting fantasies. So, and for me, I mean, so I curate, you know, all of these ideas online for people. And I, I mean, there have been so many times just in the last year where I have just camped out for days on an idea to disrupt it and dislodge it from the communities of practice in which I participate, whether they're politicos or whether they're academics or whether they're friends or whether they're family or whether they're former students or whether they're community members or whatever. And the most recent one that freaked people out is Bernie Sanders. It's, I mean, I agree with most of the things that that dude says, but the idea that he's the next great white hope and that some, and that these fantasies of whiteness and identifying with him as a socialist are both totally unsurprising to me and super problematic. One, because I think that liberals in general don't think very deeply whatsoever about class, and so their class analysis is super shallow, and their understanding of, you know, socialism, or as he calls it, democratic socialism, is also super weak. But it's this idea that sort of after, like, the youngest black president, the only black president we've ever had, and we're going to elect the oldest white dude that would have ever been president, and somehow he is going to be able to respond to the ideas that are circulating now that he refuses to discuss in his campaign, whether or not they're politically salient to him seems problematic to me. It seems like a series of miscalculated identifications based almost entirely in whiteness that white liberals cannot confront as their, as their white supremacy. Instead, they think about it as their class progressiveness. And it's not that they're entirely wrong, it's just they're missing half of the picture, which is the whiteness piece, you know? And so for me, I I just feel like there have been a bunch of moments, I feel like dashboard cameras and body cameras for police, I freaked out for probably three days. 
Because I'm like, you know, mid, mid-sized cities in the South should not have body cameras for the police. All they're going to do is run around and use them to hem up kids of color on, and force them to confess on camera before those kids have seen lawyers. Like, that's a terrible, terrible decision in small cities. And so, I mean, I camped out on that idea for, for days and days and disrupted all of these, you know, progressive academics' ideas about surveillance and accountability and, you know, whatever they think that progress is. But at the end of the day, the fantasy that technology is going to somehow stop black death, it, when it's wielded by the state, it's ridiculous. It's a fantasy that technology would somehow be able to overcome what is clearly a problem. And the reason I camped out of it is because, you know, the the... Results came out with the Eric Garner case that the cop who choked him to death wouldn't be indicted. The problem, you know, we saw what happened to him and that cop still didn't get indicted. It didn't matter that he was videotaped. More videos aren't the problem, aren't, aren't the, the necessity. It's like not killing black folks. It's a necessity. So for me, it's, it's like this disrupting the fantasy that is essential mm-hmm. in doing the progressive work of being a feminist killjoy. Or a political killjoy of really any stripe, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the job of the killjoy is to, like, present more information in greater depth than, like, oh, yeah. is actually... I mean, a lot of people claim that they know about things or have information or opinions on things. Being a killjoy is, like, <laughs> presenting a... Oh, actually, like, there's a lot to this that you need to understand... Or that you've completely <laughs> neglected to engage. I mean, that's the thing. Is I think feminist killjoys, when they perform at their best, use humor and hyperbole, and they mark rhetorical absence, and they use snark as a tone. And, I mean, I think that's why killjoys have become sort of a dominant mode of engaging with political hypocrisy. But it's not always been that way. I think about Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, sort of the classic second wave feminist text and that is totally a killjoy book she's like married women in white suburbs are unhappy they hate this they hate this life they're all drunk their husbands are abusive and or completely emotionally distant they feel isolated and alienated their labor's alienated they do not feel close to their kids they had a bunch of kids thinking that somebody would unconditionally love them they found out that that is not necessarily the case. I mean, that is an entire book that is absolutely coming from a killjoy perspective about the modern white American post-war family. And it is it holds up for that demographic today. And it is on point. And I think uh, there's a huge lesson to be learned from that particular example. Where, like, people, like, as individuals were unhappy, but they weren't supposed to be. Yeah. So they were like confused about their situation. Like, they thought that they were alone in that feeling. And Killjoy opened up a space to be like, nope. <laughs> Everybody feel, Actually, feel that go way. ahead and be unhappy. You should be unhappy. It's like saying you, you actually, you should be unhappy. And that's okay to be unhappy. And that can actually be productive. Like, that you're upset. Well, you know, in the academy, especially since the massive federal divestment from public education at all levels and during the Bush administration, there's like this, you know, every couple of months at an ad, you know, major admin meeting or went back to school or whatever. And, you know, the administrators have been constantly telling us for like the last 10 years, you should just be grateful that you have a job. 
which is this, you know, sort of compulsion, this institutional compulsion to perform happiness and gratitude in a time when there are all of these structural reasons why you might want to, I don't know, collectively dissent. And so I find that that's another ripe space for the Kilto to say, no, the problem is not our feelings. That's not what we need to tweak. We need to, you know, disrupt, you know, this sort of discursive space, whether that's legislative or whether that's institutional in the universe itself or whatever, to try and increase funding for public education again. That That's the goal. You should be totally unhappy. That's a reasonable thing to be unhappy about, that none of those federal monies ever came back to any of the states or any of the institutions mm -hmm. that needed that money. And we have more students than ever. That's something to be upset about. That's something to rally around. You know, don't tell me to feel grateful. I mean, I just, I find those messages of compulsory happiness to just be in a total affront to my <laughs> sense of self and to my, just like my, just, they just seem indecent. That's They're an, offensive. That's an important point because it kind of like distinguishes what a killjoy a feminist killjoy is because they're not just like being a dick about things they're yeah. not just like being an asshole for the sake of being an asshole they're making reasonable points about things that are wrong and yes like they're they are not happy about those things that are problems but they're not happy just for the sake of being unhappy. Like, they're making reasonable points. And a lot of times, those points are... Uh, I mean, they're ignored a lot of times. You know, like, feminism is written off a lot of times because there's like, oh, they're just mad. But it's not that they're just mad. Like, they're mad because certain situations exist. And it's a huge problem for feminism as a brand, <laughs> if we can say that, because a lot of really important women don't identify as feminists because of the stigma. There's a stigma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's like, okay, being a feminist doesn't mean you're mad. It means that you believe that certain things are problems. And in a lot of cases, those things should incite anger and criticism and action. And it's okay to be angry about those things. Yeah, I mean, you know, so I also think that there's a piece to be said here about the gendering and racializing of the killjoy. So it isn't like, like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks have written for years about the trope of the angry black woman being this sort of disruptive killjoy and in introducing a black female standpoint into political critique. And certainly, you know, as somebody who writes about the black power movement, the the castigation of, you know, radical black power figures as infantilized and yet hyper macho black men is also a space where this racializing and gendered undermining of political critique happens. And yet the thing that they all have in common is that they are killjoys. So the black power folks were killjoys of white liberalism, and they tried to point out how liberalism itself was failing in its promises for equality and equal protection and, you know, re class redistribution of wealth. And, you know, that's what black power was oriented at. You know, the so-called angry black woman is pointing to the total demonization of black women that conservatives have utilized and the Democrats have, have certainly piggybacked upon or at least been silent about and, and that was exacerbated by the Reagan administration and the tr introduction of the welfare queen as a blackened figure. 
I mean, there. It's not like it's just white feminist killjoys who get pushed out of mainstream discourse. So for me, I think that killjoys are useful because they create these counter public spaces, these resistive spaces, these you know places for new critics to train to go to battle with the assumptions and conclusions of the white male public sphere. And that training ground is where they learn sort of oppositional consciousness and how to make arguments and martial evidence that actually help delineate where race, gender, sexuality, and class converge to create possibilities or impossibilities for social action. And I think it's okay that they're pointing out that we feel the wrong ways about things that we're close to. And that hurts, and that pain is, it's not, it's not like it's incidental, because there are cultural attachments that whole populations of people feel close to. The American dream manifests destiny. I mean, this whole conversation about immigration is a total space for killjoys, right? Because mm-hmm. you have a whole nation of immigrants, right, who genocided everybody who was here, and it's like, oh yeah, we hate immigrants. Hello, Poggy Kettle. You know, that is a source for tons of killjoy. I mean, I think it's the difference between, like, hearing what's real and what's experienced by everyone and just hearing or having people tell you what you want to hear. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know. And as a person, if you're, it's like the choice between, like, pointing out what is a problem to you or just, like, buffing the rough patches from your life so that you become this beautifully polished surface and which basically just reflects what other people want you to be okay but that's, right back at them that's exactly what women are basically being cultivated to do right so yeah so you have all of these messages about what our body should look like and how our countenance should be arranged and how how many times have you been told by strangers to smile mm-hmm. fuck you fuck you not, this is not no 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 right. you get to not say that but I think that that's part of the demonization of feminists because really the subtext is don't be critical don't participate in politics be an object smile reflect my man ego back at me and that's why it's clear to me that the killjoy has political utility from a mm-hmm. feminist perspective because it points out how women are expected to be this sort of reflective surface that mirrors white masculinity back in itself, which is why the men get so upset about feminists in the same way they get, in a similar way that they get upset about the quote-unquote angry black woman or the radical black male militant or the, you know, the immigrant dreamer or all of these other sorts of oppositional, you know, relations that undermine, you know, white power or capitalism or whatever. So, you know, I just think that the feminist killjoy does really smart work in pointing to and describing how people feel alienated from the conditions that are supposed to make them happy. Mm-hmm. For precisely the reasons we were talking about, because we are asked, we are prompted so often to perform happiness about situations that make us grossly unhappy, whether those are interpersonal. Um, conditions or whether they're the work conditions or whether geographic conditions or whether they're larger political considerations or about our identification as quote-unquote Americans. All of those things were prompted to perform a happiness about that so many people don't actually feel. Yeah, and you're supposed to be happy just 
for the purpose of not making other people feel uncomfortable. That's right. Like I, there's even on a basic level, like those conformity experience uh, experiments by Arthur Ashe, yeah. where people just wouldn't say what they actually knew to be true, which was uh, that a line was a certain length, shorter or longer than an example line, because it would make other people feel uncomfortable. Just like the urge to not create discomfort in yourself and other people is so strong. But it's so destructive. It's so destructive. To, to live that way. That's why so many people feel trapped. That's why people have midlife crises. Because they are performing these outward, you know, sort of feelings without the stuff to back it up. I was having this fantastic conversation this weekend with a colleague. And we were talking about how, you know, boomers and you know, adults right now are really critical of the millennials for being infantilized. And we were both just ranting about that because it's like, you destroyed the economy. Nobody can buy a house at 24 anymore because wage growth has been totally stagnant for decades. So people are not having families and they're not buying houses and all of the other markers that you look at as positive indices of economic growth are no longer attainable for anybody at the age of 22 or 23 or 24. So they're, of course, they're having a prolonged adolescence because all of the markers of adulthood have been pulled out like a rug from under their feet, right? So that's like a killjoy thing in like pointing to the older generations, like you ruin the economy. So your standards for how your kids and grandkids should be living their lives do not apply any longer. The conditions have all changed. All of the variables have changed. So the idea that you could somehow be happy in the same way that older generations either were or express, you know, or, or said that they were is simply not possible. And so what are those younger generations to do? Because they certainly mm -hmm. don't have the vocabulary or the communication skills, and they're discouraged from being killjoys, which makes them a total mess in the classroom because they can't articulate this dissonance between what they feel and what they're told to say they feel. Yeah, I was about to say, I think they don't even understand that they've been disadvantaged in that way. Bamboozled. They've been bamboozled <laughs> completely. I've recently watched this show, Master of None. It's a uh, Aziz Ansari. Yes, I know we both love him. It's great. Is it great? <laughs> that the clips um, with his dad are so incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So he, there's this one episode that really strikes me, and it reminds me of what you're talking about, where people don't even understand what the situation is. Um. It, uh, the episode traces two different experiences of one night. Um, one is the experience that he has with his male friend. And the other is um, the experience of going to a bar and a party and like the whole night of a woman that he has some kind of working relationship with. And like the night for him is just like totally, it, I mean, there's no problems. It's a fun night, mm -hmm. smooth night. Like, the worst thing that happens to him is he steps in dog shit on the street, and it, like, makes his shoes smelly. <laughs> but she ends up being, like, in a creepy situation with a uh, dude at a drunk dude at a bar. He follows her home. She feels uncomfortable. Her whole night is awful. And it just traces, like, the two different experiences of that night. And he talks to her... A couple of days later and he's like oh that was a great night how was he was like i had so much fun he like talks about how great his night was and then he asks her how her night was and she basically straight up tells him 
I had a horrible time. I was like, got followed home, and it was awful. I got it, stalked by yeah, a dude. I got stalked by a dude. And it ruins his experience of the night. And he's upset. He's like, I had a great time. Like, how could she have had this awful experience? And the whole episode is him, like, <laughs> having to deal, like, his time is ruined. Like, his positive experiences keeps having these, like, positive things happen to him. Like, he gets a handshake from a famous director, but that that director ignores the women with him. And they're like, dude, he just, he's a sexist. And he's like, what? Now that ruins, like, the moment that I had. So the whole episode kind of, to me, is like, he has to face the reality that his positive experiences are, like, predicated in privilege. Even though, like, he's not, other episodes present him as, like, not having privilege in certain situations. But... I, I mean, thought that was really interesting. I, it's interesting because he publicly he publicly describes himself as a feminist, as he's I'm sorry does. Mm-hmm. And he clearly positions himself as a fem- feminist killjoy as he does criticism about gender roles. Absolutely. I would say that he's probably of the millennials. This is probably he's a millennial, yeah. Uh you know, probably the most prominent male feminist killjoy you know, doing this kind of critical work that we're mm-hmm. talking about. But I will say this. I will say that I am, I, I would say that the strategy that I have utilized and developed as as a, an academic feminist and as, a, you know, as somebody who's interested in politics has been the, t- the sense of humor because I kill so much joy and yet I'm having so much fun doing it. I think that it's extremely weird for people to experience the joy with me in killing old joy. You know what I'm saying? I don't think that, that being a killjoy has to be joyless. I mean, the Dalai Lama does it all the time. I mean, oh, he yeah. laughs constantly as he's just like pointing out, you know, imperialism and I'm not holding him up as some sort of, you know, um, I don't know, infallible religious character, but as a, as a, Killjoy. He totally exists in that space, and he laughs constantly as he's just sort of pointing out the simple truths about how pain and violence work in the world, and you know how yeah. people have to deal with them rather than hiding from them. And I mean, and often there are these weird moments where he's like, "Yeah, my next, the next llama could be a woman. I hope she's hot. This is going to be real helpful for her to be hot. You know, as yeah. a llama and as a Tibetan." In exile. And I mean, you know, if you don't hear his humor very, you know, if you don't know him, it seems sort of like on face offensive. And yet he's being a feminist killer. He's pointing to the problems of being a public religious leader as or any kind of public figure as a woman. And he's using sort of like snark. As a killjoy, it's there are these very interesting moments from him doing that yeah. kind of work. It's really quite fascinating. And and I know um, silliness, just like being silly, yeah. can be a way to disrupt. We do that all the time together. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. So like making fun of things, satire, is totally a way to like disrupt things that are problematic or to point out. I mean, we've been. We are silly about lean in all the time. It's super about. silly. Because it is silly. It's a silly idea. <laughs> yeah. But there is, there is definitely a difference between being silly 
and even being like a serious killjoy and being a troll. What would you say is the main differentiator between a killjoy and a troll? Because trolls both of them just are disruptive. But yeah, but they're not political. Trolls are not, poli- they don't have a political motivation. And their their concerns are almost entirely about preserving bastions of privilege that are that have clearly been documented as a source of tremendous amounts of oppression and violence. It's not like feminists just assert these ideas about about violence and discrimination, or that people of color do, or that immigrants do, or that poor people do. Is that we've got longitudinal data, <laughs> like extremely facty. It's not feelingsy, right? The problem is when feminists stir up feelings that people find uncomfortable, right? Then they're like, you're emotional, you're not being reasonable or logical when there's plenty of data to support the positions that feminists and right. folks of color and other kinds of activists, intellectuals are using to demonstrate how power creates inequality. So trolls don't do that. I was going to say that I think trolls are... Uh, into preserving a fantasy or mm-hmm. like creating a fantasy about the way the world should be and their place in it and killjoys are about like disrupting fantasy and, like not entirely though feminist killjoys feminists in general also fantasize like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg notorious RBG I think is totally a feminist fantasy of of Ginsburg as this totally and completely radical positive force for social good. Her decisions don't always come down on the side of the millennial feminists that are embracing her and commodifying her so clearly. So it's not that feminists don't also create fantasies of identification, and, and those, I think, also should be up for debate. Right. Because they do that to everybody. All identification strategies that are about political identifications that structure our feelings about how we relate to others, all of those are fantasies and identifications. And feminists don't, don't somehow bypass that. But the problem, the thing is, is that they are contributing a, a different kind of critique that is ethical. And I don't think that the trolls are doing ethical critique. And that's also not to say that some trolls don't have useful things to point out about feminism and its whiteness and its, you know, excesses in other ways, because there are certainly critiques that can be leveled against feminism that are useful, I think, even today. And certainly those conversations happen in feminist circles too, but they don't do that. So they're not making those comments. They could, but they don't. Mostly it's just being hyper-violent and rude <laughs> okay. and anti-intellectual, and they're not, they're not, and, and they are coming from a place that absolutely reifies privilege and power in ways that, that, um, create inequality and violence. So trolls are not killjoys at all. And they don't have any transformative potential. Although they can accidentally be right about things. <laughs> you know, they are not, that's, the troll is not a transformative place. Although, you know, the other thing is a question, I think, of audience about who you're speaking to. So insofar as feminism has liberation as its goal, as its political goal, then doing the killjoy work and exposing unhappiness and and its contours is political work. It's useful work. The trolls aren't trying to liberate anybody. They're trying to shut people's voices down. They're trying to shut them up. No, they're not trying to liberate anybody. They're just trying to consolidate their own power and avoid the pain of taking responsibility for the the violence that they put into the world. So do you think uh, 
killjoys are speaking to people who need to be liberated. Yeah. I think that killjoys are speaking to people who who can't see uh, how oppression is fundamentally constraining their mobility or their intellectual or sexual or social freedom. Um, I think that they are absolutely liberatory. Marilyn Fry has a great metaphor. Um, she has a piece about oppression, and she uses the metaphor of the birdcage in thinking through how people can't see their own oppression. So people are birds in birdcages, so they can see the individual forks or tines. They can't see them all at once. They can't see all 360 degrees of the cage. And so they paper the inside of that cage with leather, you know, with um, lace or with velvet or pretty pictures or, you know, whatever makes them, you know, feel like they can produce public happiness. But at the end of the day, they're just tricking themselves and papering over the birdcage and not enabling themselves to get that full panoramic view of how there are all of these structures that are actually, you know, enacted upon their bodies at all times. And I think that birdcage is a good metaphor. So the killjoy, I think, helps people to see their, the cage that they're in. And I see it in the classroom all the time. I mean, you know, we look at pop culture artifacts. And I'm like, I'm about to ruin romantic comedies as a genre <laughs> for you forever. You know, hear all of these horrible tropes and how, you know, disgusting and terrible these ideas are as they get taken up and recirculated through various forms and formats and, like, sitcoms on TV or whatever. And, you know, you see it happen where they see they have a new lens for viewing themselves and the discourses that they consume, and then they get alienated from them. And that is for a lot of students is very difficult to process and yet ultimately extremely gratifying. And if it weren't, they wouldn't love doing it so much <laughs> and want to keep doing it. I mean, know, there's, they do. Uh, you have to deal if you're going to be killjoy about things. You do have to deal with the perception of being like disgruntled mm-hmm. or inappropriate sometimes. All the time. <laughs> All the time. I mean, I know in, in my personal life, I've pointed out things and I've just been perceived as being like disgruntled. Yes. And I don't think <laughs> anyone's mind was changed by what I said or that I was being like ridiculous or inappropriate about something and no one's mind was changed. <laughs> Well, what, but in what way is that still important? Like it's when you're not taken seriously, but your complaints are legit, legitimate. You're not just disgruntled, but the things that you were upset about are real problems. Well, one of my favorite like second wave pieces <laughs> of literature is Gloria Steinem's "If Men Could Menstruate," which is full texted online. We'll post it here on the website. And I like that piece because basically um, she she talks about what would happen if men could menstruate and women could not. And she talks about how men would brag about their flow and how many pads they used. And, you know, they would have to take off work because they were really busy, you know, building their hypermasculine bodies. And... Um, you know, they would reward each other, um, socially for, you know, looking good during their period and, 
you know, they would have television episodes that talked about their first period and how amazing it was and transformative as they became men. And I mean, and it's really consumatory, right? Because it's not like, here, here's all the data about menstruation and how many women, uh, you know, must take birth control to manage the symptoms of their period, which, you know, create all this, this series of problems. It's not that kind of you know, politically expedient, data-driven argument. Instead, it's like this funny, satire, consumatory, you know, short piece of discourse that just points to the absurdity of the positionality of men who don't want to, who are afraid to talk about menstruation. And that, I think, is a good example of why that, you know, you can circulate that kind of discourse. In the hyper-interpersonal sense, um, you know, you and I have these interactions with people all the time where we, they get sad and then you know that they are tossing that around for a long time afterwards, that it rattles around in their brain. And even if it's an influence, their interaction with you, it, it influences interactions that they have with other people after you've already left the scene. And I think even though you can't personally measure that, you know, it, it's happening because it's happened to you before. Other people have disrupted you that way. And so we know that that's sort of a ripple effect. And I think that that's useful, even if you can't measure the change in real time, to know that there are strategies that the killjoy can employ over time that spread and multiply. I think that's useful. So ultimately, I think, you know, I think it's clear, at least to me, that feminist killjoys are smart and savvy critics of power and privilege and domination and they provide really useful spaces for activism and for transformation, both personal and social. Uh, and I think that they use strategies that are really compelling. And, you know, obviously I have a hyper investment in them because I see myself and I see you as sort of perpetual killjoys. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.